Good evening. Good evening, everyone. You're all very welcome to the Forum for Philosophy. Uh, lovely to see some familiar faces and lovely to see some new faces too. Um, my name is Beth Hannon. I'm the director of the Forum. Um, and uh, you're all incredibly welcome to the start of our programme for the autumn term. Um, our leaflets weren't ready. The printers didn't have them in time for tonight's event. So just a quick note that next week's event is on sleep. And you can find out more about that on our website. Uh, so what do I want to say? The Forum for Philosophy has been going for over 20 years. And what we do is we try and create a space for interesting speakers, no pressure guys, to uh, talk about science, art, culture, politics from a philosophical point of view. Um, we're able to do that because uh, we have incredibly kind donors and so I want to publicly thank all of the people who donate to the forum so that we can keep going. We're a non-profit organisation so we rely solely on their kindness. If you'd like to be one of those wonderful people, you can find a link to our Just Giving page on our website, um, and I encourage you to go there. And you'll also find a huge number of podcasts from our events uh, over the last five, six years. How, I don't know how long podcasts have been going, but for a long time. Um, uh, I think that's everything I wanted to say about the forum. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping issues. If you could turn off the volume on your phone, that would be very much appreciated. Um, but don't feel like you have to turn off your phone. In fact, I encourage you to tweet along uh, with tonight's event. I think we have a hashtag, yeah, LSE Forum, um, that you can join the conversation there. Um, this is being recorded for podcast too, so there will be a roving mic wandering around um, when it's time for the Q&A. So do wait for the microphone to find you before you ask a question, just so the podcast and all those people out there in the future can, can hear your question. Um, that's more than enough for me, so let, you, let me hand you over to our fantastic panel and Danielle for tonight's event. Thank you, Beth. My name's Danielle Sands. I'm a fellow at the Forum. I'm going to be chairing this evening's event. Um, we're going to be thinking about artificial meat. So artificial meat or lab-grown meat appears to offer us a future of meat without animal suffering and without environmental destruction. But is it technically and commercially viable? Is it as ethical as it seems? Let me introduce the speakers who are going to be di discussing these questions tonight. Uh, Professor Mark Post. Mark is Professor of Vascular Physiology at Maastricht University. You may know him because he was involved in the production of the first lab-grown burger in 2013. Dr. Anat Pick. Anat is reader in film studies at Queen Mary University of London. She's published extensively across animal studies. And last but not least, Dr. Adam Shriver. Adam is research fellow at the Oxford Uhairo Centre for Practical Ethics. His work examines the intersection of ethics and cognitive science, particularly in relation to human well-being and animal welfare. Now, Mark, perhaps you could kick things off by giving us a bit of information about how lab-grown meat is produced, uh, whether it's going to be a, a commercially viable product or not. How close are we to that? Right. Um, well, first a little... Hi, you all. Um, nice to be here. Uh, first of all, a little sort of technical background um, for those of you who don't exactly know what it is. It's actually a pretty simple uh, process. We all have stem cells in our muscle. Uh, they are sitting there doing nothing, waiting to repair tissue when it's injured. And when it's injured, they start to 
proliferate and they start to form tissue again. And they can do that inside of the body, but they can also do that out of the body. So the procedure is relatively simple. We take a small sample from a cow, extract all the stem cells from that sample, usually a couple of hundred. Then we let them proliferate until we have trillions and trillions of cells so that you can make a lot of meat from that small piece. And then um, we use basically medical technology to tissue engineering to let those cells make tissue. Um, they are relatively simple instructions, in fact so simple that some people have tried to do this at home, which can be done, uh, but usually it gets infected, uh, but that's another, that's another issue. Um, and then after you have created like tens of thousands of these fibers, you basically have meat, uh, minced meat that is. Uh, we're not as far yet to make sort of a ribeye rib or filet mignon, but um, the, the hamburger and all the processed meat, which is about 50% of the market, is, um, is within reach. Um, when we presented that first hamburger in 2013, it was a quarter pounder hamburger for the nice um, sort of um, price of 250,000 euro. Uh, so that was obviously not a product and not a um, um, viable concept at that point, but it was merely to show that it can be done and that um, we actually should think about how we are going to produce meat in the future because with livestock it's simply not sustainable in various ways. Um, so since then, um, uh, a lot of people, including ourselves, have been working on um, scaling this up, uh, making it cheaper, finding all sort of the, the cost of goods in there, removing materials that we didn't want in there that were still in that original uh, hamburger. Um, and so a couple of, uh, right now, as of two weeks ago, there are now 27 startups in the entire world um, doing this either for chicken, for, for pork, for beef, or for fish. And uh, they're all having a timeline of about three years for technical development and for regulatory approval, because in the EU this is going to be a novel food, um, so you have to prove that it is absolutely safe. And then um, three years from now, most people seem to think that it's then going to be marketed, initially as a relatively expensive and exclusive product, think... Um, nine pounds for a hamburger, whatever the, the exchange rate by then may be. Um, and um, so more for restaurants and for specialty stores than for uh, Tesco. <coughs> um, and most of us think that, that it takes another couple of years to get it down to the price of regular uh, meat. So there are a couple of challenges still. The technical challenges, most of them have been solved. Uh, it need, needs to be scaled. Uh, it, we need to get regulatory approval in various areas, and, um, and the cost needs to come down to reasonable uh, amounts. What's the kind of time frame? And we call it, by the way, cultured meat, not um, artificial meat, because there's really nothing artificial about it. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and what do you think the time frame for those things is? Uh, so um, initial entry into the market, I think, three years from now. Uh, there's actually one company, sort of cowboys who, um, literally cowboys, who um, uh, think that it can be done this year, but then you need to bypass all the regulatory um, uh, procedures, which is kind of weird. Um, but three years is reasonable, um, again, for a relatively small uh, scale still and a relatively high price. Um, and but soon after that, it will it will get to reasonable prices, I think. 
Thank you. So you talked about it as a solution to existing problems, so problems with, with factory farming, problems with sustainability. I mean, Adam, maybe you'd like to jump in here and is this the best solution to these kind of problems? Are there other solutions? Yeah, um, I, think, I think the sort of first important piece of background from an ethical perspective is basically that the current system of producing meat is really unsustainable. So if you look at um, population growth and the fact that countries historically have tended as they get wealthier to sort of eat more meat uh, per capita, um, if you look at sort of the way that people currently eat meat, um, it basically completely would outstrip the capacity for the land and water, clean water, to, to sort of um, uh, provide the resources that we need. So, so the, the current status quo is, is unsatisfactory and unsustainable, and there needs to be something done about it. Um, so this is one option among many. Um, I think there's a lot of other problems that kind of also need to be included in sort of thinking about the ethics background. And so sorry, I'll get around to your, to your question. But um, so one is that um, there's also uh, a lot of information that's been coming out recently about um, the health problems of red meat in particular and processed meat, um, where uh, the World Health Organization has said that processed meat is uh, carcinogenic and that um, red meat is probably carcinogenic. Um, so there are health concerns with the current way we're doing it. Um, there's also a really huge problem that doesn't get mentioned a lot, which is antibiotic resistance. So um, people maybe hear about it a lot in the medical context where humans get prescribed a lot of antibiotics, um, but bacteria is slowly developing resistance to that. Um, and that can cause problems. But it turns out that actually there's a huge amount of antibiotics that are being used um, in animal agriculture, and there's a risk of uh, zoonotic diseases jumping between um, animals that are grown on farms and human beings. Um, so that's another huge problem. And then, of course, as you mentioned earlier, that you know I care a lot about animal welfare, and I think a lot of people care a lot about animal welfare, and um, the current system is really... Um, you know, quite bad for, for animals. Um, chickens, cows, pigs um, tend to be treated, um, you know, fairly badly in modern industrial fa farming. Um, so sorry to sort of throw out all that stuff. But so I think given all those problems, um, I think everyone sort of recognizes there needs to be some type of solution. Um, this solution, if it's uh, viable, seems to have a lot of really nice advantages, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, other types of things that have been discussed are, you know, people just shifting more to plant-based diets, you know, regardless of there being artificial meat. So that might reduce some of the the strain on the land usage and the, the sort of um, the inefficiencies of energy of growing crops and then just giving the crops to animals. Um, and then uh, there are also, um, I think, in the agricultural world, um, maybe interestingly parallel to this discussion of um, cultured meat, if you, asked, if you went back 10 years ago and people said, um, should you use genetic engineering on livestock, the farmers would be like, oh, no, that's crazy. We would never do that. Just like 10 years ago, people would say, oh, it's crazy to do um, uh, cultured meat. Um, but now there's more and more discussion at, at all these academic conferences about agriculture of using genetic engineering to try to reduce some of the environmental consequences or improve welfare or things like that. So, so there are kind of a number of um, options on the table that um, all have pluses and minuses, and um, you know, there's a lot of things to say about how they weigh against each other. Perhaps we could uh, take up this idea of, of animal welfare and, and how cultured meat might improve the situation. I mean, Anat, do you want to pick up on I mean, I think assuming that the technical any technical glitches and economic um, challenges are resolved, 
um, and there is a way of upscaling it and making it cheap and accessible. It's difficult for me as, a, as an ethical vegan to kind of argue, it seems a little petty to argue against um, in vitro meat simply because, <laughs> but, but there's a but coming, um, simply because it contains, it comes from, from animal cells. But so I guess for me, the, the question is less one of practicality and a more conceptual question. Um, why, why is everything, why is the whole conversation so meat-centric? Um, and does in vitro meat or cultured meat or lab-grown flesh or lab-grown meat, and I think there's something to be said about the multiple names um, as well that suggests a kind of lack of clarity about what this thing actually is. Ontologically speaking, we can get to that. But um, for me, one of the, the problems is that it seems to reinforce meat as a central, as central to our diet. And, and I guess I'm wondering um, why that might be. Uh, I know that universal veganism is probably not practical, um, but, that's, but I'm still interested in, in thinking what the introduction of invader meat might do to our future relationship with non-human animals. And, which direction it will um, take us and them um, as sort of you know, cohabiting the, the planet, and whether it will um, replace conventional, um, conventional meat or maybe create a kind of two-tiered system where there is so-called real meat, authentic meat, and who will that be available for and who won't it be available for, and then the kind of mass-produced in vitro meat or cultured meat um, for, for, the, for, for other groups of people. So I think there are multiple problems, social, cultural, discursive, ontological, and ethical around, uh, around the uh, cultured meat. Having said that, um, and especially in light of the IPCC report that came out today about the global warming, it's kind of a, um, it would be a hard sell to, to, to argue against um, against cultured meat as a solution, as you said, Adam, as one solution amongst many. But I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it is perhaps one solution and not a non-utopian one, non-ideal one, amongst a number of, of other paths that we need to consider when we're trying to reconfigure our relationship to other animals. I mean, perhaps we could come back to this idea of the environmental impact of farming and the environmental impact of, of cultured meat. I mean, is it, is it something that's going to resolve that, that problem? Well, there are some um, uh, preliminary, and I must stress preliminary, uh, life cycle analyses that have been done. Um, and they seem to agree on that, yes, you can save quite a bit of land, 90% um, of the land, 90% of the fresh water, which are big um, uh, benefits. And on energy, the discussion is pretty much out there. Um, some people calculate that it could reduce energy consumption by 60%. Others say, well, no, it's going to be sort of equal, and still other people say it might actually be even more. Um, so that's on the energy side. Uh, still, if you think about the greenhouse gas emission that comes with livestock, it's not only um, energy, it's also just emission by the animals themselves. Um, so if you can generate that energy without the same sort of emissions, you will still have a benefit. And I think we, we can. We have plenty of energy on this planet. Um, we just need to harvest it a little bit more smart. Yeah. 
Um, and I think there are, um, I've heard other people mention sort of additional complications, which is that so a lot of the greenhouse gases that come um, from uh, cattle in particular is uh, methane and from the, the, the usage of nitrogen in the fertilizer. Um, and those um, have a sort of half-life, so they, they do contribute greatly to um, climate change, but they also... Um, you know, sort of, so, so methane in the atmosphere might be there for 10 or 20 years and then uh, come back down as opposed to carbon emissions, which stay longer. So I've heard some people worry about um, the use of this technology if it's going to be very energy intensive and if we don't make the changes that we should make anyways about shifting away from fossil fuels, um, then it could be sort of environmentally worse in, in one possible regard. But I think, um, like Mark was saying, there are just so many different um, ways in which uh, current system has environmental problems, whether it's the usage of clean water, which is a dwindling resource, resource on the planet, land, use, uh, land usage, um, those types of things, uh, it seems like it would be a pretty clear benefit um, in that case. Yeah. And what's the likely impact on farming? I mean, is this the end of livestock farming? Um, not not entirely, but it's going to, in, in my mind, going to reduce uh, appreciably, and I think it should be. Um, now, I I think we always, not always, but in in often we uh, we discuss farmers in sort of a very condescending way. These are the ultimate entrepreneurs. They will find ways to extract value from land. Um, and still the animals or the, the, the cells that we grow also need to be fed. They need to be fed by, by uh, plant-based um, amino acids, sugars, um, uh, vitamins, minerals. So there will still be um, quite a and of course, also uh, just plant plants and, um, uh, uh, and legumes and crops. So, um, there, yes, there will be farming and it will, it will transform. Um, as it has massively transformed over the last 30 years, it will continue to massively transform um, over the next 30 years. Um, you know, I, I usually give my, my neighbor as an example. My neighbor used to be a pig farmer um, with uh, 500 pigs, and he couldn't make money anymore with the pigs, so he switched to potatoes. And he now loves his potatoes as much as he used to love his pigs because they bring money on the table, and it's a way to extract value from the land. And... They, uh, he, he knows about my work, but that had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I, have, I have a bit of a sort of utopian uh, sort of uh, comment on this, too, which is that I, I feel like there are two different sides of farming. One is the, the side of economics and you know, extracting value from the land. But there's also been this very important historical association with farming of a certain type of lifestyle of an individual who's... Um, really cares a lot about their craft and is very sensitive to uh, the natural world and how changes in the natural world can influence um, what they 're doing and and you know this this idea that the farmers know the animals better than anyone else so there 's this really i think sort of interesting kind of virtuous character idea that's associated with um, farming and of course you know it 's easy to be somewhat cynical about. Uh, stuff like that nowadays, but but I do think that there's some value in that ideal. Um, but nevertheless, if you've seen what's happened over the past 50 years, that ideal I think has shifted a lot. Where not only is it the case that um, the practice of farming has gotten much more kind of 
cookie cutter or you know sort of uh, industrialized where maybe some of that art um, uh, at least doesn't appear to be there as much. But I also think um, farmers are, have kind of come up against something that's been shocking in the last decade or two decades, which is that they've been subject to a lot of criticism, whereas before they were kind of always held up as you know, these esteemed vital members of society. Now there's people who care about fair trade, who care about animal welfare, who are, who are subjecting farmers to criticism. So, uh, so all, of that, all of that is to say that um, I think you know, maybe this could actually shift us closer or, or shift us back towards this more idealized notion of farming where if you had the vast majority of meat produced uh, in cultured situations, um, it might be the case that farming itself uh, is done by people who really care a lot about it and sort of see it as an art form or a craft or something that, uh, that means a lot to them. And so uh, the land could be used in a way that, uh, that, that, that nicely fits with, with our idealized version of farming, which no longer seems to be uh, the, the, ma- the major way in which we're doing it. If, if I can jump in here, I think you're probably right. that, And that's what I meant earlier when I said that I kind of anticipate a two, two-tiered system Developing where the majority of meat would be cultured meat and then um, a kind of luxury product uh, that would be this sort of idealized, romantic, nostalgic, dare I say, notion of um, kind of artisanal, artisanal meat being produced. But one of the problems with that would be the availability, who, who is going to consume what. And I think that that opens up some questions around class, Race, perhaps even gender, in terms of the availability of the the kind of um, artisanal stuff, and and who who is going to get to eat that, and who is going to eat the rest of it, um, the the cultured meat. I mean, and that's one thing. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that I think it's it's been very interesting to me to think of the kind of rise of cultured meat or artificial meat um, alongside the, 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 exactly the, the, um, the movement for, um, so-called humane meat or happy meat or compassionate omnivores. Um, there's a, a multiple names for it. Um, and in a way they sort of present a kind of dialectical, a, a response to the same conundrum, which is, um, industrialized farming, uh, ultra modern farming with all the challenges that it poses. And these are two, seemingly opposite responses to the same question. So one would be to completely abstract the animal, um, almost to the point of removing the animal um, by using stem cells, which are kind of amorphous matter almost. Um, The whole animal is absent. Um, And then the other is this artisanal notion of um, nostalgic, um, bucolic, uh, the ecolic understanding of farming, which acknowledges the the animal, which has a personal encounter with the animal, uh, and we we've seen it in, in TV shows like um, what was that TV show um, called? Um, Raise it, cook, kill it, cook, eat it, cook it. Do you know the um, where people where people are encourage to form? It is yeah, it is. It's a local, uh, but, but I mean it exists um, across the board where, where people are encouraged to know where their food comes from, mm-hmm. and these two these two tendencies coexist at the moment. I don't know which one will. Uh, I think the one that you're describing is probably more economically viable in the long run, but it's conceptually interesting that these two things uh, occur at the same time. And and again, it's very confusing for me and perplexing because on the one hand. Um, there is a lot. There is some kind of um, honesty and charm in 
forming a relationship with an animal that you're then going to, to kill and use, but you're kind of looking them in the eye and um, killing them and eating them. There is a sort of a kind of honesty. There's an old school sort of etiquette, if you like, in that. Um, but that is still an instrumental and ultimately violent relationship, whereas in, in, in cultured meat, it's almost as if you've taken the notion of instrumentalizing our relationship with animals to its logical conclusion to the point that instrumentalization is so extreme, the animal has virtually disappeared, and instrumentalization sort of annuls itself and becomes non-instrumental, and that's why many vegans are very enthusiastic about um, cultured meat. So I find the whole thing quite paradoxical. Um, but what is the answer to the question of where the food comes from in, in cultured meat? What, it doesn't come from anywhere. There is no, there is a trace of an animal, but where is the animal in cultured meat? And that's exactly what makes it kind of okay for vegans. And yet, it, it in a way reifies um, instrumentalization in a way that is also problematic for, for animal liberation people or, or ethical vegans. I think there are a couple of interesting points. Um, uh, first of all, I, I look at it at a global level. So globally, according to the FAO, uh, meat consumption is going to increase, which is something that we have to deal with the, the next 35 years, supposedly. Um, and that has to do with what Adam touched upon, that people in India and China and Africa become wealthier and they start to eat more meat. Uh, it's not what we are doing here in the UK or there on the continent. It's uh, what is happening in uh, in parts of the world that we that are currently not sort of uh, represented here. Um, so that was the, the, one of the reasons why we thought, well, you know, uh, hopefully at some point we will move towards a more plant-based diet, and I think we will, um, but it's going to take a long time. Who of you is vegetarian? Can we see hands? Wow, it's almost like I'm in Berlin. Um, who of you is vegan? Wow, okay. <laughs> we have, a, um, I assume, a somewhat selective public here. <laughs> um, All of the LSE is like that. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, excellent, good, good show. Um, uh, so um, I, I think we gradually see, uh, we're going to see a tendency towards, towards a more plant-based diet, and you kind of uh, illustrate that. And I, I see that a lot among young intellectual uh, wealthy people. Um, again, that's somewhat selected, but uh, you're the front runner, so you know that's fine. Um, having said, uh, so, so uh, uh, um, what I was wanting to what I was wanting to say is that, um, and, and my PR advisors tell me not to say this, but um, it's, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, is that in the end, I don't think artisanal meat and cultured meat can coexist. Um, and because, because of, essentially because of the ethics, um, we will gradually, if we move away from the notion that we have to kill animals for our meat, that will be radical and there's no way of going back. Um, and then at some point you have two pieces of meat in the supermarket for one animal has been killed and for the other not. And I don't think that can coexist for a very long time. I think we have seen uh, a couple of examples where, based on animal welfare alone, 
um, consumption has massively changed. And one of the big examples in the EU has been caged eggs, where we essentially have a similar product, slightly more expensive, and it gradually has faded out um, caged eggs entirely from the market until the European Union, not known for its decisiveness, have decided to uh, ban them from the market. Um, and the other thing I um, want to say about it is that um, if you start to culture meat, and you already alluded to that, it becomes something else. It's no longer sort of the masculine, powerful, macho, uh, hunter instinct type of uh, tissue. It, it's generated without any risk in a factory or in a uh, brewery or whatever you want to call it. So culturally, it becomes something else. And it becomes actually more a plant. Then it, be, then it is sort of still our notion of meat, although it's tissue-wise and, and sensory-wise essentially the same. It becomes culturally something else. So I'm, I'm, I think that this is also an intermediate product that actually may facilitate going gradually towards a more plant-based diet. But, of course, that's not science. That's just what I think. But that's, that's really interesting to... To kind of end up where you're thinking of cultured meat as a kind of plant, and I have, um, there's a, a wonderful article by um, a plant philosopher called Michael Martyr, where he argues that that it is precisely, um, it follows the growth pattern of a plant, um, primarily because it's made of stem cells, which are kind of that are not destined to grow into a a whole organism, highly differentiated. Um, coherent whole animal and so it follows the, the, the growth pattern of a plant more more than an animal and yet it is called cultured meat or lab grown flesh so the there is a persistence of meat there which I find that's the confusing part for me um, because if, if we are moving if this is part of a, a movement towards plant, a plant based diet isn't it however sort of reinforcing the, the centrality of meat by being Meat. Yeah, I mean, but it's it also, is meat and it isn't meat. So. Yeah, but it still allows our perception of what meat is or our, our understanding of what meat is uh, to, to change, um, as it already um, has changed. Um, we are not, um, I mean, the, the few of you who still eat meat are not thinking about, wow, you know, this has been hunted. Um, <coughs> And um, uh, so whenever I say, well, you know, what if the, some of the attraction of meat is actually the fact that we have to kill animals for it uh, and that we sort of illustrate our supremacy over another species, most people are looking very sort of hazy at me as an elm. Where is that coming from? So that concept is not, is, has already changed. And if you, if you I'm talk, I'm convinced by that. <laughs> I mean, particularly in the kind of culture of nose to tail eating that we see in, you know, lots mm -hmm. of big US cities and here and across Europe, um, that there's a there's a kind of fetishization of eating the organs or eating the face or, which is feels a bit like a return to the kind of sense of, of meat as a product of hunting and a kind of masculine logic, if you want to put it that way. Right, but now you have to look at the numbers. Sure. Who is buying meat at Tesco and who is doing uh, mouth-to-tail um, uh, eating of animals? Um, you know, it's tiny, massive. Um, and th the question is whether that will, will change or not. Um, and I, I think not. 
because it's actually very convenient to get your meat out of a plastic um, container at uh, Tesco. I have no interest in tex- Tesco, but uh, just because I'm here, I uh, <laughs> just, a, just a metaphor. <laughs> can, can I ask a follow-up question for Annette? Um, so uh, I think it's a really interesting point that you raised about the sort of instrumentalization of, uh, of the concept of animals uh, if, if in cultured meat. But I guess um, I'm sort of curious to hear more about so, so one reason you might think it'd be bad to reinforce this idea of instrumentalizing animals is that it might have negative effects in other areas of society, right? We, we might keep, keep animals in zoos because we have this notion of them as merely being here for human usage, or we might keep using them in invasive lab animal research. Mm-hmm. Um, but is, do you, are you saying that even if those types of consequences didn't result from it, there might be something wrong with it? Or are you, are you worried about the instrumentalization because it might lead to us treating animals negatively in, in other types of ways? I mean, I'm worried about instrumentalization as the motive, as the primary motive relationship between us and, our, and the world around us generally. Um, as I said in the beginning, it's really, it, it kind of sounds slightly crazy and petty to argue against uh, something that offers a mass reduction of harm and killing to animals on the basis of this conceptual uh, quibble around the notion of instrumentalization. But it's something that that bothers me. Um, That is not to say that that I don't support um, a shift towards cultured meat, but I guess I would be, yeah, I would be interested in seeing or, or thinking about it more holistically. What, how do we relate to animals in other walks of life in the examples that you gave, for example? So, yeah, zoos, I mean, captivity, entertainment, medical research. Uh, and I don't know whether animals play, currently play a role in, um, as experimental subjects around in this field, if, if they come into it in any way, shape, or form, but um, it does it does concern me. But the the flip side of that, as I said before, is that in a way, in vitro meat radicalizes the notion, the notion of an instrumentalization to the point where it kind of seems to dissipate, if you see what I mean, because there's no one being instrumentalized, ultimately. Because the animal has disappeared, there is no one who is being instrumentalized. So we kind of, I mean, to think it to its logical extreme, you you reduce life to its, to its, to, to bare functionality, to kind of abstract matter. And then you could argue that no one is being exploited or instrumentalized, but it's sort of a strange kind of sci-fi vision of what life is. But I, I suppose that the bottom line of what I'm saying is that I wonder what in vitro meat will do to our notion of what food is and what it means to be alive. I mean, are, what are we eating here? Um, we're not eating someone anymore. We're not maybe even eating... We're eating something. But what the kind of ontological status of that thing is, I just cannot get my head around. Um, that that moves away from your question about instrumentalization, but I suppose it would be nice to try and imagine a, a world in which we do not just enter the world and <clears throat> interact with other beings in it only to extract value from them, as you put it, Mark. So, yeah, 
the um, uh, so I'm I'm tempted to ask this, and this is not a, it's just as a as a way of thought. What's the ontological status of a um, of a hot dog? Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. And hot dogs, for example, like processed meat. Seems to me like a step before, you know, that kind of um, shrink wrap meat seems to me like a step, like it's leading to, um, like it's leading to cultured meat as the, the realization of, of, pro of processed food. So it's already, it's already removed from the animal. It's already, the animal's already absent. So cultured meat takes that further and takes it, as I said, to its conclusion, if you like. And my, my difficulty is trying to figure out whether the conclusion is desirable or not. Right. Which it's, and in practical <coughs> terms and in, ter in utilitarian terms, it seems highly desirable. Yes. But in, other, in, in, in speculative conceptual terms, for me, it isn't desirable, and maybe because um, it still uses animals. So it uses animal stem cells. Um, and one, one thing that I've been toying around with in my head is whether we, us here, who most of, most of whom don't eat meat, I guess, um, how would we feel about uh, using human stem cells to make a burger and, and eat it? I don't know what, how people would feel about that. And why? If not, if we, if we kind of seem to uh, recoil at the I thought... I usually try to avoid this subject, by the way. But, uh... <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of inevitable. I mean, uh, yeah, if, if we do recoil from the, the thought of having um, cultured meat made out of people, um, to quote um, the line from the film Soylent Green, why, why do we recoil? Because it makes no, no there's nothing rational about it, right? No. I mean, no. would, you, would you be opposed to producing meat from human stem cells? I would. Because for, for I mean, let's say if the law permitted it, would you still be opposed to it? Um, I would, yes. And I, I have to say this. I don't want to say this, but I have to say this. <laughs> that I would. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean... <laughs> Come on. <It's>, uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> if I were to be truly scientific about this and, and, not, and sort of ignore the emotional aspects of cannibalism. Um, and, Conceptual, though. Right, and, and try not to um, think about how the public would look at sort of the notion of, oh, this is cultured meat from, uh, from, from people. Um, I do realize that if I, if I talk to 8 to 12-year-old kids, that's invariably where they come up with, you know, can I, can I taste myself? Um, can I taste her? Uh, I really want to taste. I really want to know what she tastes like. So kids at that age invariably come up with that idea. Um, adults rarely do. Um, you, are, <laughs> you are an exception. I'm, I'm, I'm a teenager at heart. Yeah. <laughs> right. Good. Good for you. Uh, and it's interesting because, uh, in a way, so it's it's basically a post-pubescent taboo that we have created. 
uh, because obviously eating uh, people is not sustainable either um, if you have to kill people for it. So, um, but if you don't, then you know why? Why not? Um, the reason why I say I would not is because I fear that there will be a, a tr tremendous emotional sort of backlash from the public uh, looking at cultured meat as oh, this could come from um, other species or our own species. Um, so while we're on this. Uh, pleasant topic. Uh, it reminded it reminded me of a, an interesting article by we'll talk about another topic <laughs> uh, by a philosopher named Bob Fisher. I don't know if you've read. It's called uh, Facsimiles of Flesh, um, and he he gives this example of um, a detective who uh, captures a serial killer, and in the serial killer's home, there's a, a lampshade made out of human skin, um, and then he asks us to imagine. Well, what if this detective? didn't want to actually make a lampshade out of human skin, but instead wanted to create a perfect replica of a lampshade made out of human skin. Wouldn't we find something disturbing about that desire on the behalf of the detective? Uh, you know, wouldn't there be something wrong with, with it that we, that we need to account for? And, and he goes and uses that example to sort of make a similar argument about uh, eating animal flesh, the idea of eating animal flesh, might, there might be something wrong with it. But I, I think one thing to note about these types of things is that you know, we have really strong intuitive reactions to certain types of ideas, and there's a lot of debate uh, in, in philosophical ethics about you know, how strongly you privilege certain types of reactions uh, versus uh, you know, if, if you have if you have an ethical framework that you you go by, and then you find some intuition con conflicts with that uh, ethical framework, uh, should you try to revise your intuition, or should you try to revise your framework? And there, there's a lot of debate about that. But I I think at the very least, there's good reason to think that we shouldn't wholly um, trust our intuitions about weird cases like this, because if we trusted our intuitions, there might be taboos against you know, things 50 years ago that nowadays are, are sort of perfectly uh, accepted in, in mainstream society. So, 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 you know, I'm not saying this is exactly like that, but I do think we need to be cautious about how our initial sort of disgust reaction to, to certain ideas, whether that's really telling us something morally important or whether it's just there's some other explanation of what's going on. But. I mean, this seems to link to the idea of public perception more generally. And, and, and at you were talking about the, the lots, the, we've got lots of different names for this thing. Um, and it seems that we're trying to settle on one that's useful and palatable. And um, I mean, what is, what is current public perception of cultured meats? Is it, are people in favour of cultured meats? Is, is there still a kind of sense of, of disgust at the idea? Or? Um. Uh, both. Uh, there, there are now an, a large number of surveys, like 30 or so, um, across the world, um, basically questionnaires. So it's, it's dry swimming, right? Um, it doesn't tell you necessarily what people are doing when, they, when they're making choices in a supermarket. Um, but it gives kind of a, 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 the background of thinking of people. And <clears throat> If you ask the question, are you in favor of this technology, kind of a very neutral question, uh, I guess, then um, somewhere between 25 and 50% of the people say yes. Um, so they understand sort of the rational benefits of this. And, uh, um, and we recently did a study where we went a little bit further. Um, this was, by the way, in the south of the Netherlands, where the awareness of this technology is much stronger than, than anywhere else because it was basically born there. Um, 
uh, again, 50% of the people say yes, and 90% of the people said they didn't want to taste it, which was kind of interesting, um, even before they got any type of information. And then at the end of the study, we let them taste a piece of conventional hamburger and a piece that was labeled as cultured hamburger, although it was still the same hamburger. Um, it's a psychological study. You can fool people in psychological studies as long as you disclose it afterwards. Uh, because the, <laughs> the real question behind this, I, 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 would make, I have to make, uh, clarify this. So the question that we were asking in the study was, what type of information do we need to give people to, uh, that will affect their acceptance? And marketeers have all sorts of ideas that people are only interested in personal benefits and not societal benefits and not in animal welfare and all those sort of things. Um, and so for, in order to address that question, the two products had to be exactly the same. Uh, otherwise, you have sort of different uh, differences of that. That's, that's why. And also because it was reasonably expensive to make it. Um, and it was interesting that actually when people see it in front of them, and uh, it looks exactly the same, and uh, you have the anticipation that it tastes the same, um, everybody ate it. Um, and actually, they found it tasting better than the conventional one, which is kind of, we know that from uh, sensory analysis studies, that if you tell them something is really expensive and rare, it starts to taste a lot better. Um, so, um, but that's about the extent that, we, uh, that the, the studies have been done. This is kind of the most sort of invasive study, if you like. Um, we are planning to do these studies in virtual supermarkets and let people basically choose from different products. Um, but that's, that's ongoing work. But I think the baseline is, so I, the other thing is that, that there are you know, early, early adopters enough. Uh, at one point I made the mistake of calling out uh, in a newspaper for courageous people who wanted to taste this and, and my email box basically exploded. Um, so we, yep, you have, we have early adopters enough, but then the rest will gradually have to come. And, and I'm usually using the example of the, uh, the hot dog to, um, because there's sort of an emotional response against something that is co um, uh, uh, concocted in the lab, uh, and they use that as a food. And um, a lot of that has to do with uh, safety. Um, because I, I'm using the sort of the, the example of a hot dog and ask people, you know, do you eat a hot dog? And they say yes. And do you know what's in it? I said, well, please don't tell me um, <laughs> because then I might not uh, want to eat them anymore after that. Um, so we, we are perfectly capable of eating stuff that we actually don't exactly know what it is or how it's being made um, and is dissociated from any natural source of... of food uh, that we can think of. Um, so, and, but the reason why people eat hot dogs because they know uh, it doesn't kill you immediately. <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> so it's safe. And for a product like cultured meat, you, there is sort of that question out there, is this going to be safe? And apparently people don't think we're going to kill them immediately because they want to taste it, uh, but sort of in the long run. So that's something that we have to definitely Address. But then I think it will be fine, to be honest. I'm, I'm not too concerned that this will catch on. There's a sense in which I, th I think that um, cultured meat is really at a disadvantage if you look at, uh, so the hot dogs are one example, but sort of all these products in the modern food system of processed food 
if if you imagine going back in time and giving a survey, you know, would you, and you described what, what it took to make a hot dog, or if you described what crazy chemicals you're going to put in Doritos and you had to have a press conference of the first time we're going to use red dye number seven in a food in a real food would you, would you eat it or not I would guess most people would say no but it, so so there's a sense in which the cultured meat has to is, is having to prove itself a lot a lot more in advance compared to a lot of other things that just kind of make their way into the food system right right and and I think that's that's an interesting point because a lot of the sort of innovations in food, like enzymes and preservatives and colorants and, and what have you, um, have been introduced in the food kind of in a stealth mode, right? Sort of without any sort of uh, uh, commercial or, or advertisement or whatever. Um, and we had from the very beginning the feeling that we had to be completely transparent about what this was. Um, and that you have to, and that's also where the name actually comes back to. Um, so there is a strong consensus among the people who are doing this that we should call this meat because biochemically and texturally it's the same. And, and so it would be kind of misleading to consumers to not call it meat in a way. Um, however, uh, it requires a qualifier to let people know, oh, it's made in a different way. Um, so I think those two components about the name are, in my mind, important. Why did I get to the name? I forgot. But it's, uh... <laughs> I think we should take some questions. Right. I think we'll take two or three consecutively, and then you can take your pick. Um, perhaps we'll start with this lady at the front. Hi. Um, I'm a student here at LSE studying psychological and behavioral science for just this purpose to try to see if we can change consumer habits around um, uh, eating with respect particularly to climate change impacts. So I'm curious about how the dairy system is going to work with all of this, especially if, uh, you know, in the future we're really not going to have much in terms of livestock Thank you. Let's take another question as well. Good evening, everyone. Um, thanks for the discussion. It was very stimulating. Um, I have a question that's probably best suited for Professor Post. Um, I just wanted to know if you anticipate any backlash from big factory farms or any companies where um, the income is predominantly derived from the, the factory farming of, of livestock. Thanks. And one more. My name is Leopold. I'm a management student here with a big interest in genomics. I have two questions. I hope that's okay. So you mentioned fish, beef, pork, and poultry, but those are just blueprints, aren't they? Are we really limited to them, or can we create a new sort of better, healthier meat? And as a follow-up, who stands to benefit most from cultured meat? Are the big genomics firms, or for example, Oxford, who are developing a micropore sequencing on DNA, are they going to benefit from cultured meat? Thank you. Okay, so lots to choose from there. Question about dairy, question about backlash from factory farming, and then question on new sort of meat, and finally, who stands to benefit? Right, so dairy is, um, in some countries, like uh, the country where I'm from, the Netherlands, um, meat is a byproduct of dairy. Um, 
but that's kind of particular. Uh, uh, most countries that produce beef um, at large scale, Argentina, uh, Brazil, uh, Australia, India, uh, they actually produce beef and not um, sort of as a byproduct of dairy. So um, it is a local kind of thing. Uh, having said that, um, there are companies now making uh, dairy uh, components um, through uh, recombinant technology, so using yeast or bacteria to produce lactoglobulin and casein and sort of the, the protein compounds, uh, protein components of dairy. And of course, we have dairy substitutes like almond milk that shouldn't be called milk, but almond milk and soy milk and things like that. Um, just to pick up the question of who stands to to benefit, um, I would kind of want to reformulate it a little bit and, and see what. Uh, my fellow panelists think so. So one thing I'm curious about is, um, well, I, th I think there are a lot of ethical benefits that at least potentially would come from this if it, if it uh, goes the way it sounds. But I'm curious about, um, as Mark was mentioning, the fact that if um, the vast majority of population growth is going to come in China and um, Africa in the next century, um, and the technology right now is being developed in Europe, are we going to be in a situation where uh, countries are self-sufficient, or are they going to be dependent upon sort of technology from European countries or American uh, startup companies? Is, is there a is there a way in which this can be done in which um, it really benefits each local community, or that you know it's not creating some system of dependency where um, you know there's sort of like the knowledge center of people who are producing it and exporting it to everyone? Yeah, yeah, I think. Um, <clears throat> Uh, th this is a question that, that bugs me, to be honest, because I, of course, cannot really control how this is going to be uh, sort of implemented in society. Um, <clears throat> and I think the technology in itself allows it to be used at a very small scale, um, at a scale, uh, at a community scale. You don't necessarily need to have an entire factory uh, with highly skilled people. You can do this at a community scale, in a, in a microbrewery, if you like. Um, and I would very much um, like that idea, uh, not only from sort of a, a social perspective, but also from an acceptance perspective, because that would be much closer to the source, and, and you would feel more comfortable with something like that. Um, <clears throat> having said that, eventually, uh, you know, uh, it, it being becoming a commodity <clears throat> and being produced by large-scale factories that make it that can make it two cents per kilo cheaper than somebody who does it in a microbrewery, uh, that, will, that will gain kind of uh, uh, momentum at some point. Um, so uh, some of this has to do with the, the intellectual property, um, and the intellectual property currently is pretty open, so everybody basically can do this. Um, there are two patents, but they're about to expire pretty soon, um, so then everybody basically can do this uh, with their own uh, technology. Um, the, the, the thing is that um, every, all the 27 companies that are now doing this are privately funded, are funded by meat industry, by um, venture capitalists, also by animal welfare uh, uh, protagonists. So, so there are lots of different funding mechanisms, but they're all private. There's almost no public money going into this, which is a big shame to be honest, and I'm trying my best to get companies in the EU to invest in this, but it's, it has proven to be very, very difficult. 
Um, and that means that you leave it to private capital, and then, you know, our hands are tied in a way, too. Yeah, just to add to that, that I think your question indicates that the technology is, as often said, is kind of neutral in and of itself, and what needs to be thought and discussed is, you know, the way in which it's produced must not replicate the same structures of power that are currently at work. And so whether or not that can be done, and that's definitely, I think, a huge challenge, but if we just move to in vitro meat um, but reproduce the same structures um, of profit, distribution, and so forth, then you're going to end up in a situation where um, issues around food justice, environmental justice, are just uh, they just pop up again in a different guise, and then we have achieved less than we we might we might have done. So there needs to be some kind of a, a social, political, ethical debate around how to implement this in a way that is that is not, not just safe um, in terms of health, but just and socially and politically just. The, the, the companies are currently all led by idealists, um, so that's the, that's the good news. But they're still small, and eventually will, some of them will be taken over, and then uh, things are going to change. Um, what is uh, what sort of an interesting, almost from the very beginning, um, uh, initiative from in, in Japan is basically you know, teaching kids how to do this at home. <clears throat> with uh, Gatorade and with uh, you know cells that you can sort of uh, buy and and using using egg white as a um, as an anti um, infect as an anti um, uh, infectious agent and all these <clears throat> so I, I now get a lot of uh, high school students who basically try to replicate the protocols that have been developed in Japan and and so you can you can support kind of that grassroots uh, movement um, at this stage. We take some more questions. Um, hi, um, I had um, a condition where I had to have like um, a high protein diet for a sustained period of time for about six months, and I couldn't have any carbohydrates or anything like that. So I was doing a lot of research into like um, food and proteins and, and so on and so on. And um, I come to the establishment that um, uh, grass-fed um, meat is the best form of meat and also as well how you were speaking about methane gases in, in, in the atmosphere and so on and so on. But if, if the cow is grass-fed, it produces less methane gases, so it's better for the environment, for instance. And um, your um, analysis about your food, it seems more commercially driven. Um, you said that um, your food, you don't call it um, artificial food, you call it cultured food, for instance, to give it a better branding. But there's also negative connotations that can potentially come with that, like misleading people into buying things, for instance. And just to say, just um, short briefly, is that when I changed my diet to a high-protein diet, I felt like I felt better, like my well-being was better, my emotional well-being was better, and so on and so on. I found um, some positives, but it's an extremely expensive way to live. So, um, yeah. Thank you. I think there was another question up there.
Thanks. I have a two-part question. Um, first, I was wondering, uh, this is for um, Dr. Post. If you could comment on the inputs for the artificial, or sorry, the cultured meat. So what is in the culture medium? Um, and is that indeed all vegetarian, or do you... Um, do you have animal inputs like BSA or something? And then second, could you comment on the economics? So if the culture medium is indeed the most expensive component, which is my assumption, how do you see the cost coming down as the technology scales? Um, you mentioned Soylent Green earlier, Anna. Um, and so I guess the question for all of you, how do you think, um, because, because everyone who's going to be buying and consuming this stuff has kind of cultural experience of you know, science fiction and stuff like that, how much do you think that people's uh, experience of fictional representations of cultured meat and other sorts of kind of foodstuffs might affect their attitudes to cultured meat? Thank you. Can we take those? Uh, what, do you want me to start? Which one? Um, well, I guess I could start with the, the cultural representations. Um, yeah, there's a lot of um, there are different there are different books and novels and um, films that deal with it. How much they inform um, our perception of it, I'm not sure. Soylent Green is not necessarily a, uh, a very a good advertisement for. Well, it is and it isn't because, of course, soil and green is made of people. So as a thought experiment, it does suggest that um, as long as, you know, murder is, is not involved, um, there's, no, there's no reason to not eat it, I think. There's no rational reason to, to not consume cultured meat that's made of people. Uh, although, of course, in Soylent Green, as if you recall, there is the, the two-tier system of certain pe rich people getting to eat real, quote-unquote, meat, and the rest of the people not getting to eat it. And, and I still am unconvinced that the future is not two-tiered in that way, and that bothers me. Um, but fiction is a wonderful platform for exploring um, ways of thinking about the limits of... of Meat, um, the limits of of what an animal is, and, and when it becomes something else, which is whatever this is, cultured or even kind of moving towards a plant. Um, so, I mean, Margaret Atwood is another name to mention in this context. There's a whole bunch of um, people who have been experimenting fictionally with these representations. I I'm not sure. I, I don't know how much they inform actual. Um, and people's willingness to try or not, I tend to agree with you. I think people will, with time, people will be willing to, to try it, um, and it will kind of take hold over time. I, that sounds about right to me. If you really want to know, there's a lovely um, study group in the, at the University of Exeter um, of literary scholars who have been tracking this. And um, so references to uh, cultured or artificial meat in... Um, Victorian literature dates back to 1850. <clears throat> um, uh, the cost of good, um, if I may. Um, <clears throat> so the, the, um, the medium, so the medium is called the, the, the fluid with all the, the ingredients, uh, the, uh, the building blocks for the cells to grow. 
um, is entirely plant-based. Um, so there's no, no longer usage of serum or any other animal proteins in there. Um, there are a couple of uh, recombinantly made proteins in there that we need to uh, replace the serum, um, and, and they are made the way we currently make insulin. Um, the cost of good is an interesting one because the, that actually refl- re- relates to those growth factors, which are currently horribly expensive to make. Um, and it's interesting, so um, for those who, you, who don't know, we use about six proteins in there, and each of these proteins costs about a 1,000 euro for a milligram. Um, and that contributes tremendously to the cost of the medium. Um, and it's interesting because these proteins are, they are commonly made, um, and very similar proteins in the food industry as enzymes cost about four euro per gram to make. So um, if you reach that, then all of a sudden those growth factors don't contribute to the cost of the medium anymore. Um, if you take all the, currently, all the ingredients of medium, so medium costs about 10 euro, 15 euro for half a liter. If you take all the ingredients and you, and you mix it with water and you make it yourself, it's about 25 cents. Um, so there is a tremendous markup on the, on, in, the, in the value of these products once they get to the labs and to a very artificial market. Um, uh, and even further than that, so we have done, of course, a, 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 a extensive cost of good analysis where it would actually end up to. Uh, end up to. Um, and that, that ends up with recycling where you can recoup 50% of all the ingredients. Um, ends up to about um, 2 euro per kilogram for the medium which is 80% of the cost, approximately. Well, we're not there yet. It's going to take a while before we're there. And just a comment on the grass-fed beef um, question. Uh, so the, uh, a group at Oxford um, had a, a nice review in Nature Climate Change in the last couple of months that did a really good job summarizing all the health and environmental issues that come up in, in current meat production. Um, and they talk about this idea of grass-fed beef, um, and it's true that relative to other ways of, uh, of raising cattle, it's better and it has less methane, um, but it's very dependent on specific landscapes, so uh, it can't really scale up in the way that would, would be required to, to feed the world's growing populations, uh, and it's also not at all clear that it would be preferable uh, in terms of sort of just climate impacts once you account for uh, water usage, um, land usage, and that type of thing uh, to just sort of a plant-based diet, uh, or at least that's what they, you know, that's their sort of summary of evidence. So um, I don't know if there's a way of posting the link on the, the podcast page or something, but I'd be happy to post a link to that article. So I, so I think grass-fed beef um, is definitely better than a lot of other ways of raising beef, at least for the environment, but um, it's, it's not clear that it's really preferable to a, a plant-based diet, I think. So. Thanks. Uh, but, not, but your health, uh, that's putting aside the health issues, of course. If you need, if you need that, then... <laughs> Let's take some more questions. I'll be some towards the back, I think. Hello. Um, I was wondering, if you can genetically modify meat, can you genetically modify plants to contain the same nutrients that meat has? 
Thank you. We'll take another one. Hi, my name is Sarah. I work for a market research company, and a lot of my work actually focuses around the sustainability of proteins, both animal and plant-based. Um, I have a comment and a question. Um, with regards to what Anat said about um, using meat uh, product basically to produce more meat, um, not being really the point of the movement, right? You said um, kind of defeats the point of stepping away from eating meat. I think that in, with that regard, there's a much bigger problem to tackle, and that is also ingredients that we use in products that are baked goods, cereals, biscuits, anything that doesn't seem like a conventional animal product, but we use a lot of ingredients that are animal-based. Um, the question I have is on incentivizing governments to invest into non-meat-related industries, because I think that there is a tremendous amount of investment both from the industry as well as government. How do we incentivize both sides to invest into non-meat-related industries? Thank you. I will just take one more. Um, I have two questions. One would be, what do you think about using the term clean meat? Because that's the one I've been hearing a lot. And um, do you have a timeline in mind for when uh, this type of meat might reach price parity with conventional meat? Thank you. I didn't okay, so that lots, last of, part, lots of questions there. So one about genetically modifying plants, one about um, right. animal ingredients and in other products, one about incentivizing governments, a uh, question about the, the phrase clean meat, and last one about price. So in terms of uh, genetically modifying plants to make um, animal proteins, uh, of course, can be done. Um, I don't know why you would, to be honest. Um, the, uh, so the whole debate about, um, I mean, most of you don't eat meat and you all seem pretty healthy to me. Um, so you show that you don't actually not need, don't need animal proteins. And you don't. Um, Basically, proteins are a source of amino acids, and out of 24 amino acids, only nine are essential, so we can make them ourselves, and we have to get them from food. And they happen to be in meat, um, all of the, those nine, but um, they happen also to be in soybeans and or combinations of soybeans and other pulses, so you can easily get those amino acids, um, even if you don't eat meat or any animal protein for that matter. Um, so... Um, the reason why we are making uh, meat is because that's a product. The, 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 the product itself, with all its perceptual sort of uh, sensory qualities, is what people love. Um, and we are not making it because we think they need it, but we, we, are, we are making it because we know they love it. Um, and if it's, an, if it's a plant that has animal proteins in it, which is still a plant, and, and may have some myosin or, or um, actin or whatever, I, would, I wouldn't see the point in that, um, to be honest. <clears throat> what I, another interesting but, but very uh, challenging idea has been, can you actually make hybrids between plants and muscle cells? And you can. It's called green eggs and ham. Um, uh, and, and you can do that, but it's, um, I, I think it will be extremely challenging from an acceptance perspective. <laughs> um, 
For me, uh, on the question of other products that contain um, other food stuff that contain animal-derived ingredients, yeah, absolutely. For me, to, to maybe express a more uh, a, a clearer, less ambivalent opinion, this whole this whole debate for me personally misses the point if we continue to define animals as edible. So in vitro meat, in its whatever kind of practical future it has or has not, um, is useless to me personally in terms of the way I see the world and the way I try to think of my relationship with other creatures, is, is useless if it does not get us to rethink our relationship with animals and, and actually conclude that animals are not edible. Animals are not food. Um, so I, I would, so to me, yeah, I would abstain from any, any, any products that contain animals because they enshrine the same kind of uh, violent, pathological, in my view, relationship that we have with animals, which we talked about earlier as in terms of instrumentalization. So I don't know if that, if that answers your, your question, but if, if I do have a problem with um, cultured meat, it is that it continues to think of animals as separate from us, as hierarchically separate, and it continues to describe us to ourselves as somehow exceptional. So we're the only creature that isn't edible, whereas everybody else is. Um, if cultured, so cultured meat can actually perhaps resolve that problem in the future, but it has to be discussed in these terms. It has, we have to think about human exceptionalism. We have to think about um, the notion of what makes a creature edible or, or not edible. And I think that whatever we decide to do practically has to kind of emerge out of this, this discussion, um, which is why speculation and, and conceptual analysis is important beyond the kind of economics, in my, in my opinion. Beyond the economics and the, the technological challenges, this is also a conceptual problem. And I think, I think this is implicit in what some of the things you've been saying, Annette, but just to sort of spell it out, at least for my own benefit. I mean, I think we can ask two different questions, which is one is, should people who are currently eating meat switch to eating cultured meat? Um, and a different question would be, should people who are currently vegetarian or vegan um, support this yeah. movement or, or, you know, eat cultured meat as a way of, you know, showing its viability? And, and I really agree with a lot of what Annette is saying, where I think there's this, this separate strand of movement of, you know, resisting the idea that animals are just here for human usage uh, and that, that, you know, is something that's shared with a lot of problems that humans have, not just with animals, but with the natural environment, all kinds of things that, you know, there's, there's a reason to resist that idea that's independent from, uh, from some of the reasons that people would have for switching to clean meat. So I think, I think it's valuable to have two of those things at the same time. And just to kind of tie it back to the incentive question, I mean, it, to me, it seems like this movement probably wouldn't have come about. Uh, Mark, I'm sure, knows more about this or may disagree, but this movement wouldn't have come about if it weren't for people agitating, um, you know, who, who were becoming vegan, becoming vegetarian, caring about the environment, pushing uh, on issues in other ways. That's what sort of led to the ground that, that could make this something that... Um, Silicon Valley pioneers were interested in investing in or other other types of things. So so it's important, I think, to keep uh, the sort of 
pure notion of plant-based diets as a part of the conversation because that's going to be what pushes change even if these other technologies are being developed. Right, but it's, it is interesting. I, I talk a lot to vegetarian and vegan communities um, all over the world, um, mostly in Berlin and, and Zurich, by the way. But, um, <laughs> um, <coughs> and, and interestingly, I have interesting debates with, um, with, the, with the movements, uh, the leaders of the movements um, who say they actually um, are in favor of this and they actually... Uh, propose to their um, constituents that they should start eating cultured meat as soon as it becomes available. Whereas I have been saying from the very beginning to vegetarians and vegans, please, please never start eating this. Um, uh, for different reasons than mentioned. My reasons are primarily food security and, and environment. And what vegetarians and vegans are doing for food security and environment is much better than what I can ever do with cultured meat. So that's why I have been saying to vegetarians and vegans, please, please never touch this. Um, but the, the leaders of those movements um, are actually doing the opposite. And they say, well, please, you know, start using this, uh, start eating this and, 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 and basically, um, you know, advertise this. Um, because they are very pragmatic. And they say this is probably a much better way to reduce the tremendous number of animals used in, in animal agriculture, in livestock agriculture, than um, trying to convert uh, every soul to become a vegan or a vegetarian. So it's an interesting debate that I'm having that is completely opposite of what you would think we would have. <laughs> I think we've got time for one more set of questions. There's a couple in the same way there that we'll take. Yeah. Is there more to be said about the health benefits of uh, cultured meat uh, as opposed to processed meat? I mean, is there evidence that they might be less carcinogenic if the culturing is done right, for example? And is there more to be said also about how states could uh, accelerate this, given all the positive uh, benefits to society, the environment, and health? Should they be doing more than just uh, maybe investing in some of these companies? Should they be changing public policy to make this uh, path smoother? Thank you. Um, so um, I'm interested in the gender politics of artificial meat. So you, it was constantly being harked back to this idea of meat-eating as a masculine activity. Um, and it sort of it recalled um, a text which um, by Robert Mackay in the Vegan Theory um, handbook. And he um, recalls a personal experience of a um, family member offering him his vegan food and he and he coins it lesbian food. Um, and in this moment, it kind of epitomizes how plant-based um, diets are categorized. And would the same connotations be there for artificial meat? It, going back to what Natpick says, in terms of who gets to benefit, who, who's, the luxury item of meat eating will still be there, if you, if you see what I mean. Thank you. I think there's one question right behind you. Yep. Thank you very much. That was very interesting. Um, so I also work with Sarah for a market research company and have written about uh, lab meat a little bit. 
I guess my question uh, is, is to Mark on the point that you made that artisanal meat and, cult, uh, and cultured meat cannot coexist. Um, so does that mean you can get all types of meat with uh, the cultured meat method? Um, and if that's the case, we talk about cultured meat a lot, but what about the culture of cooking meat? So, you know, for chefs cooking on the bone and barbecuing, what happens to, to that idea of cooking? Thank you. Okay, so three questions, one on the culture of meat, one on the gender politics, and one on the health benefits of cultured meat. So in, uh, for the, the, the health benefits, um, so there are two risks, uh, health risks with uh, meat. It's um, uh, colorectal cancer, increased risk for colorectal cancer, and it is um, cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease is related to the saturated fatty acids, and we can make our, the fat tissue in this hamburger uh, contain polyunsaturated fatty acids, omega-3 fatty acids, if you like. That's not a big deal. Um, we need to figure out what it does with the taste, but it's uh, something that can be done. Um, the other part, the increased risk for colorectal cancer, that's why the World Health Organization advises not to eat more than 300 grams per week of uh, red meat, has been attributed to heme iron in the meat. Um, but that evidence is not very strong, to be honest. Um, so the, the, the epidemiological evidence that eating a lot of meat uh, increases the risk for colorectal cancer is strong, but not what the particular component is that drives that risk. And as long as we don't know, we don't know how to fix it. Um, uh, if it's heme iron, we, by the way, accidentally have a way to fix it because we can titrate the amount of heme iron that's in that meat. Um, which effectively would allow you to eat more meat without the same health problem. Um, so it's, it's kind of neither here nor there. But uh, yeah, there can be uh, there can be changes made um, to so that it's healthier. Yeah, and I, I think governments should support this. So I've been I've been claiming that they should um, fund this. Uh, and of course, they um, one of the other things that they can do. That there are two other things. One, openly sort of uh, support this. Um, and the other thing is um, uh, make sure that the meat lobby cannot sort of uh, jeopardize the regulatory approval path. So those are the two, uh, two important points. I think you, you said something about gender earlier. Um, you, you described it as a kind of a uh, more feeble or type of... Yeah, I call it the wimpy, wimpy, the wimpy version of meat, yes. So, yeah, I, I, I guess to, to answer your question, I think, some, I think that's going to come into marketing. I think that consideration of how to market meat, uh, in vitro meat, cultured meat, to the masses or whoever they are, will, there'll be several routes that an advertising campaign will, could take. Could appeal to the, to, the, to the ethical eater or the environmentalist, but it will have to also address the issue of, um, you know, the macho eater who wants, like, to see the blood in the, coming out of the burger or whatever. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not, there's some marketers here. They, they can maybe help us out. But I, I'm sure that gender dynamics will come into it. Um, but you could make the argument that, yes, if, you can make the argument that cultured meat is this kind of stereotypically wimpy um, not wimpy, wimpy, not wimpies. Um, <laughs> like literally wimpy. Um, because it doesn't have that, it's not associated with the, the masculine act of killing, butchering. Um, so there's an interesting rewriting of the gender 
dynamics there, but I wonder if if the marketing will actually try to kind of compensate for that by portraying it in a more macho way. Who knows? Yeah, we will certainly not, but it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, just to comment, because there are a couple questions about how the state could get involved. I mean, it, right now it seems millions of years in the future that the, that we would actually have governments supporting things like our cultured meat over current meat production. But I, I actually think, uh, you know, and I come from the United States where things seem particularly hopeless in terms of ever, you know, passing <laughs> laws that restrict people's freedom. Uh, but but I, I think as the, as the evidence is coming out about the environmental, negative environmental effects of the meat industry and also the health implications, um, you know, we're seeing... Uh, more progressive countries pass things like sugary drink taxes and uh, other types of using types of incentives that actually you know shift people in certain directions. So I actually don't think it uh, would necessarily be that far off where um, states might start taking actions to to try to um, shift policy in a more positive direction. Whether it's limiting conventional meat usage and how uh, cultured meat would play into that is an interesting question. But I think there's at least some hope that. Um, countries might be open to that idea. There was one question about the um, uh, my my comment or my my vision that at some point they cannot coexist. And and yes, that requires the qualifier that we will be able to create all types of meat uh, with the same quality and the same sort of price um, that we currently have. Um, and of course, that's that's future work. Uh, in principle, that can be done. We can make, in principle, um, ribeyes or T-bones. I, I, I wouldn't know why we would make bones, but it's um, um, it's, it's it's doable. Uh, uh, technically, it's it's very easy to do. Um, Hasn't foie gras already been done? Isn't that one of the big achievements this year? Yeah, but foie gras is liver. Uh, it's another it's tissue. Easy in some of them. Sorry. So it's easy. Easy to produce. Um, yeah, it is because it has hardly had any structure. It's basically the structure of butter, right? So it's um, uh, anyway. Um, the, um, so so yeah, they we would be able to create them um, uh, at some point. Um, you made another remark, but I've about cooking. Yeah, about the cooking. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, there's, there's not going to be a difference in cooking. That's the, uh, uh, that's the bottom line, I think. So um, there are lots of products out there where cooking actually will start. Oh, that's what I wanted to say. Um, <clears throat> I once gave a presentation at a two Michelin star restaurant in, um, in my hometown. And the chef became all enthusiastic because he said, well, you know, now I, now I can start my cooking before the product is actually there. Because I can start to fiddle with the food of the product in my in my kitchen and actually shape the the, the form and the, and the color and the taste and the texture of that product even before I touch it with my fire. I found that that kind of an interesting concept. So it creates new opportunities. It, it does that. <clears throat> I think sadly we have run out of time. Um, Thank you all for coming. A reminder that next Monday we are thinking about sleep, so do come along. And join me in thanking our speakers.